The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Thank you, Joe. You guys can tell that he wrote that and did the music to it as well. It's beautiful. Obviously, mainly quoting scripture. And uh, wonderful, thank you. Well, if you have your, your Bible or you can just follow along in the, uh, with your app on your, on your phone or, or in the bulletin, we're in the middle of Jonah. And we're in Jonah chapter 3 this week. And um, Sidney Gradanus in his book, Modern Preacher, Ancient Text, he says this about Jonah, <clears throat> in case you're wondering why we're studying this book. He says, there's no reason to doubt that In Jonah's attitude towards the Assyrians, all Israel would identify itself with him and would know itself to be rebuked in him. And there is equally no reason to doubt that this is exactly what the writer intended. In transmitting the message of Jonah to the church today, there's no reason why the original intention of the author should be utilized by having the church recognize itself in Jonah. And so the idea is that Jonah is holding up a mirror, and the mirror is for us to see ourselves. This is kind of the the boomerang effect. You throw the boomerang out, and you think it's going to get everybody else, and then it comes around and gets you. And Jonah has a way of holding up the mirror and actually getting us to see, do we really love the lost? Do we love those outside of our tribe? Do we love those that are of different ethnicity? different language, different generation. Do you love cities? Do you love people? I mean, do you love going to Walmart and Costco and seeing all the people and the myriads of people? Do you like that? I mean, Gaithersburg is the second most diverse city in America behind Jersey City, New Jersey, according to some recent stat that came out. Um, Kim and I went to a restaurant recently and something happened. We didn't have a good experience. I'm not gonna tell you the restaurant. It was here in the area. And uh, it was clear when we walked in that we were not the regulars. And uh, we didn't get the memo that you seat yourself. And so once we were kind of looking around waiting for somebody, it kind of became obvious. And uh, the waitress, it was like everybody there knew the drill but us. It was this weird feeling, and the waitress had no pleasantries for us. And uh, she wanted to know when she got to us, what do you want? And, uh, and hurry up, because I got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and it was like all this food was piled up, there was no busboy, and the place was really messy. And it just gave you this feeling of, what are we doing here? And Kim looked around, and she, she said, it's obvious that she doesn't like us. Let's do everything we can to win this waitress. And I don't know if we ever really did. (laughs) We tried. Um, And I looked around, and everybody was the same ethnicity in the room. And everybody was basically 55 or older. And nobody really understood that, hey, this restaurant is working for you now. But five to 10 years from now, if you don't embrace the new community, there's not gonna be a future in 10 years. And I thought, oh Lord, don't let our church 
be like that. Because here's the thing, the food was actually decent, but the environment was so bad and so unhospitable and so unwelcoming that the one person of how I measure the church was the waiter, the waitress. And she was so bad that I will never go back. I have no desire to be there, even though the food was good, because I was not welcomed. And do we welcome people when they come to us? Do we go out of our way to welcome people? I was reading, or I was talking with somebody in the church that's doing some stuff for Barna, and if I'm getting this right, there was a, the question was being asked between how do believers see themselves and how does the world see believers? And there was quite a disparity when it came to how do you treat, uh, how do Christians treat you? And Christians think, we treat, each, we treat people really well. And then the world was saying, actually, no, you don't. And there was quite a bit of disparity between the way the numbers were measuring themselves. And so we may think that we do a good job, but really, after church, is that really the time to be talking to your friends? That's the one moment you have to really go after people and greet them. It's not to say don't spend time with your friends, but I think sometimes churches think we're really friendly, but it might be a lot like that restaurant. They were all friendly amongst each other, but it was clear we did not fit. We did not belong. God wants us to have his heart, and it's clear that everything that Jonah was is God was not. So here's the interesting thing. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness, relenting from calamity. Jonah is ungracious. He's cold. He's quick to anger. He's abounding in selfishness, and he's rooting for calamity. He lives in the suburbs for a reason, because he hates the city, and he wants the city to go down. And so are we more like God, or are we more like Jonah in our attitude and our prayers for Ninevites, for the foreigners? I was struck by Pastor Bren's question last week, and his question was to the effect of, if God was to answer all your prayers, do you remember that question he asked last week? That really struck me. If God was to answer all your prayers, who would be changed? Would, would the world be changed? Would countries be changed? Would nations be changed? Would cities be changed? Would churches be changed? Would Montgomery County be changed? Would your family be changed? Neighborhoods? Or the only thing be changed is you. You know, I was struck by that question because I was thinking, oh, probably mainly me. We tend to be very selfish in our prayers, and yet the Lord's Prayer purposely gets us about your name being hallowed throughout the earth and your kingdom coming and your will being done. We don't get to a petition about ourselves until petition four. So something amazing happened last week in our story, and it's something we just gloss over. How does chapter two of, of Jonah end? I mean, Jonah was worthy he was deserving of being digested and being sent out the back end. And God in his great and infinite mercy was gracious and merciful and sent Jonah out the front end of the fish. Let's not forget, that's how Jonah 2 ends, was the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. An amazing second chance. And that's the title of the message. So let's think about chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's the only eight-word message that's ever been given. Eight-word message. And the people of Nineveh believe God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let not man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us through this word that you would remove the cancer of sin in our own hearts, that you would enlarge our hearts and help us to see Jesus and his love for people and for us. And we pray that that love would grow in our own hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've got four chapters in Jonah. It's fairly concrete, isn't it? Jonah in the boat. Jonah in the belly of the fish, Jonah in the city, Jonah in the suburbs. So it starts off, he's sleeping in the boat, then he gets kicked out of the boat. So chapter 2, now he's praying in the belly of the fish, now he's preaching in the city, and then chapter 4 is a pity party in the suburbs. There's some interesting words in Jonah, repetition, okay? So I'm only going to, I'll give you homework. Your homework is to look at exceedingly and a point, and just look through Jonah and every time it's used, because there are certain words that keep repeating to, to get you to see, but I want to focus on great. Okay, the word great is a, is a big word in the book of, of Jonah. It's, it, it begins, I mean, we have a great wind, chapter 1, verse 4. The great wind leads to a great tempest, 112, and that leads to a great fish that's going to swallow Jonah. But the bookends of Jonah, look at the very beginning of the book of Jonah. It begins with telling Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great city. And how does the book of Jonah end? The book of Jonah says, it ends with, um, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And then right in the middle, chapter three, verse two and three, we are told two more times about Nineveh. Go to Nineveh, that great city. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. I mean, do we get the point? I mean, I'm a little slow sometimes, but when you tell me four times that Nineveh is a great city, God loved Nineveh, okay? He loves 
people more than plants. And that's one of the big points of Jonah because it ends with, in Jonah, the only time he's happy in the whole book, full of affections and exceedingly happy is what? When the vine was producing the shade over his head, okay? Small people are satisfied with small things and small hearts are dwell on the trivial and he's just, that's the only time he has affections <clears throat> that are good in the whole book. Okay, so we're, we're told something here. So we're seeing God's heart for the city. It's a great city. And so the book though is ultimately not about Nineveh. It's about Jonah. If the book was about Nineveh, it would have ended at 3 verse 10. That would be the end of the story. 310, God relented when he saw that they repented. End of story. Does the story end there? No, because he's still got to win his man. And the slowest person to repent is the one with the most theology. The one who's got the best prayers and the best preacher, it's like the pastor is the last one to repent, okay? So, so the, the one who's having the hardest time with this is the one who has the most amount of information. But we see here in this chapter, Jonah's recommission, Nineveh's repentance, God relenting. So let's just look at those three points. Jonah's recommission. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry to it the word which I'm telling to you. Now, it's amazing that this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's amazing. We just read over that. A lot of people don't get a second time, okay? Can you think of some examples of people that, that don't get a second time? I mean, there were two people, Aaron's sons, they just offered strange fire. Nadab and Abihu, hey, let's, let's offer this up to the Lord. God just struck them down, dead. They didn't get a second chance. Uzzah thought that he would just steady the ark. The ark is on the back of the, the, the ox here and, and it's starting to stumble and we don't want the ox to touch the earth, so I'll just steady it. God struck him down. You're not to touch the ark, that's holy. And the ground is cleaner than you. So God strikes Uzzah, he, he doesn't get a second chance. How about Lot's wife? I mean, Jesus just gave us a simple command, remember Lot's wife. She looked back. She became a pillar of salt, just like that. No second chance. Lot got a second chance. You remember, he lingered. He didn't even take this thing seriously, and the angels have to grab him out of the city. I mean, God was being merciful to Lot, but Lot's wife looked back, that was it. Ananias and Sapphira. They thought they would offer this thing and they'd bring the money into the church and say they gave one amount and it was really, you know, they're keeping back a portion for themselves and they make it look like they gave the whole thing to the Lord so it made them look more righteous and holy than they really were and they were being decept deceitful and they're just instantly struck down, dead. God doesn't owe us a second chance so he could take any of us out before we ever get home today. That can happen. But God being so merciful to Jonah, he gives him a second chance. He gives Nineveh a second chance. And these were a wicked people. You see, the book of Jonah is all about second chances. And sometimes there's little distinctions that I didn't even catch this, but O. Palmer Roberts in a commentary says this. He says, little distinctions in the Hebrew Bible often mean a lot. Jonah's new commission is almost exactly as the same as the first one God gave him, but change of one letter makes all the difference. On the first occasion, God told Jonah to cry out against the city. Now God tells him to cry out to the city. 
ESV doesn't catch that. His life experience shouts to his hearers, look at me, forgiveness and restoration are possible even for those who disobey and run away from God. Instead of preaching exclusively against the city, Jonah's very presence was a message of hope to the city. Even Jonah being there, and they're seeing this bleached guy who's probably his hair's bleached, and you know, he's been in a fish being, you know, digested by chemicals for a few days. He probably don't look real good, you know? He's, he's looking a little rough. And then he tells him, you know, I'm sure, he, I'm sure he didn't smell real good either, you know? Well, hopefully he had a shower. So the book of Jonah is all about second chances, and Jonah even gets it in Jonah 2.4. He prayed, I'm driven away from your sight, but I shall look again upon your holy temple. So Jonah knows that there are second chances. And so what's the irony here? Is that God gave Jonah a second chance, and the irony is that God, Jonah doesn't want to give Nineveh a second chance. He's going to go preach to them, and, he, and we're told he doesn't preach any more than those eight words. Do those eight words offer any grace? Is there any hope in those eight words? I mean, tell me how merciful and gracious those eight words are. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he's probably taking great delight in it as he's giving it. Because these were the enemies of the people of Israel. And so Jonah, though, God is still using him because at least he went. He's preaching this message of repentance. God has commanded us to what? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, Matthew 24. That's why we go on short-term trips. I was disappointed that we, we weren't able to send a trip to Fairmont this summer. We didn't have enough people to really mount a trip, and I'm hoping that that's not the case with, with um, our trip to Honduras. And I would encourage you, if you have an inkling to go in that direction, this is a great opportunity to encourage some, some wonderful missionaries, Matt and Ellen, and they really appreciate this church and they're doing a great work. And, and they're going and they're seeing the gospel now going to the ends of the earth as these, they're ministering these different pastors and the pastors are way back into the, up in the mountains and far reaches and highways and byways as Luke 14 talks about. It's a good thing that they're doing. This is why we invite people to church, because we're to tell the whole world about the gospel. This is why our small groups are meant to be open and not closed. I loved a while back, we had a small group meeting in our house, and Sam has this wonderful gift of hospitality, and she was bringing food to the small group, and let me tell you, she brings the best food on the planet, and the Uber driver was smelling the food each week, and the Uber driver was like, can I come to your small group? I mean, and she may have just wanted to come because of the food. Well, if that's all she wants to come for, that's okay. Did any of us come to, to church originally with the greatest of, noblest of motivations? If the Uber driver comes because the food smells so good, well, let him come. Come on in. And, and, she, and sure enough, the driver came and had fellowship with us. It was wonderful. We are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and if they come initially because just because of the fellowship or just because of the food, it's okay. You remember Jesus said as he went throughout the cities and villages, teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and every affliction, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
but they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers. And it's really, it's the word for kicking out a demon. It's thrust out laborers into his harvest, ekbalo. It's not just the send word. It's much more violent than that. Pray that God would thrust out workers into his harvest field. And then he sends out the 12. We have been sent as the church. And Jonah at least went to the Ninevites. Give him credit for that. It was the second time. He didn't want to do it the first time. And he had to, he had to, God had to send a divine mission of a submarine uh, through, a, through a, a fishy submarine to get him, to rescue him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said right after he wrote the great chapter on election in Romans 9? We Presbyterians like Romans 9, right? Big sovereignty chapter. It's, you know what comes next? It's the great missions chapter of Romans 10. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Do we know that verse like we know Romans 9? You can't cut out either one. They're both true. And the reason that we go is because it, we know missions will be hopeful because God has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's how our worship service began. It began with Revelation 7, 9. There's a multitude that no one could arithmetic. Nobody could number it. They couldn't count it. It was so big from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it says, Romans 5, 9 says, by your blood you ransom people for God out of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. That's what God's doing. He recommissions Jonah, he recommissions us. And what happens as he goes is that Nineveh repents. And what we see here is that God's mercy is greater than man's sin and that nobody is beyond hope. Everybody repents in the book of Jonah. The only person who doesn't repent and we're left with a big question mark at the end of Jonah, everybody repents but who? Jonah. He's the la we're left like the elder brother in the story. Are you going to come in? I mean, prodigals come home. Who's the lost son in, the, in, the, in Luke 15? The elder brother or the prodigal? It's the elder brother. He's the one left out with a question mark. Are you going to come in or not? Well, Jonah's the same way. Are you going to come in or are you going to stay out in the suburbs and just get all have a pity party? Jonah's, Jonah was the prodigal prophet. And yet we, we see that the Ninevites were a rough people. I mean, I was reading a commentary this week and had a journal entry from a king in Assyria about a hundred years before Jonah's time. And I don't know if I can pronounce his name, King Asher Nasparal II. This is what he wrote on his journal. I caused great slaughter. He wrote, describing a military campaign. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took the warriors prisoner, impaled them on stakes before their cities. He reported a battle where 3,000 were killed, many others taken prisoner, prisoner. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to their wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burned their young women and men and women to death. Does that sound like a people that you would want to show mercy to? This was a brutal people. 
The Ninevites were violent, and that's why they're, they're being called to repent of their evil way in verse 8, and it's from the violence that was in their hands. And yet we see in this chapter, nothing's impossible with God. No heart is too hard. No sin is too big. God's grace can forgive anybody. Nobody's too far gone here this morning. There is an impressive list of people who repented and turned to God in the Bible. People we would have written off, and the Ninevites would be high on that list. God saved Zacchaeus, chief, ca- chief tax collector who was rich. That would be like high up in the mafia in our day, okay? He was way up there, okay? He would have been in the family, all right? He saved him. The thief on the cross. He's called a thief on the cross for a reason. The man of the tombs. There's a name for you. He just, you know, we're going to go to the other side where, where the insane guy lives, and they shackle him up, and he's naked and screams all the time. We're going to go save him. It takes the disciples on a little short-term trip across the lake to the man of the tombs. God takes Saul and turns him into the apostle Paul. One of my favorite, I was just reading this week, God saved Manasseh. Do you know the story of Manasseh? It's in 2 Chronicles 33. It goes like this. Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and serve them. That's not good. It gets worse. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set up in the house of God. Manasseh led Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Does that sound like there's any hope for this guy? He was wicked. Then the Lord spoke, it goes on, it says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and all his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And it goes on. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Those are fruits of repentance from Manasseh. So who in your life is the Manasseh that you're thinking, there's not a chance there is no hope. There's hope. God brings 11th hour workers to himself. He brings a thief on the cross to himself. J.C. Ryle, in his great quote about the thief, he said, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. (laughs) God can change the hardest of hearts. And so the king and the people of Nineveh understand mercy better than Jonah. Both the sailors and the king of Nineveh, they say the same thing. Perhaps God will be merciful, and in both cases, God showed mercy, and the people repented, and yet outwardly, they did everything they could. They called out to God. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They were letting God know, we're serious. This fast was so serious, it included the animals, and there was not even any water allowed. 
And the irony here is that, you know, Jonah just gives this little eight-word message. He doesn't know his message is going to catch like a forest fire and that the king is going to be a better preacher than Jonah. Jonah's heart really wasn't into his message, but the king of Nineveh is wholehearted in calling the people to repent particularly of their violence and to cry out to God. I mean, he takes up the mantle of the message and proclaims it loudly, and the people repented. And so then we see in verse 10 that God relented. When God's people repent, God relents. We look at... um, this passage where we might be inclined to think, well, Jonah gave a message that said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How come they, God relented? Was this a prophecy, a prediction, or a warning? You see, Jonah wanted it to be a prophecy. Jonah wanted it to be a prediction, and in reality, it was received as a warning as the people repented and God relented. Jeremiah 18 puts it like this. Okay, concerning prophetic announcements of judgment. They weren't absolute. They were conditional. And the idea is, Jeremiah 18 says this, if any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not afflict on it the disaster I had planned. And so the idea here is that this is a warning, not a prediction. And so when the people repented of the warning... God relented. God doesn't change. He's responding conditionally to what the warning is that if you don't repent, then this will come upon you. And so the message for us, there's something here for us this morning because Jesus says something pretty radical in Matthew chapter 12. And in chapter, and Jesus often would say things that were painful. I mean, here he just says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, but the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified, or by your words you'll be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they heard this and they said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Jonah will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that was true when Jesus said it, and it's true right this very moment. Something greater than Jonah is here, and it ain't me. It's the authority of Jesus and his word. And Jesus is bringing a judgment. You come to him and accept him as the lamb, lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He'll receive you. But if not, he'll be a lion to you. And there'll be a great judgment coming down. You see, Jesus preached to a generation for three years. He reinforced the message with miracles, and yet they largely didn't repent or believe. The Ninevites heard one sermon from one preacher, eight words, and the sermon emphasized wrath and not love, and yet they repented and were forgiven. And so 
the, the idea is Jesus is saying to them, they're going to rise up and give an account and they're going to condemn you because they repented and you didn't. And so the Bible is relentless to us this morning about fleeing the wrath to come and repenting of our sins. Jesus very first words out of his mouth are, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the idea is, 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 is this. The Bible says the Lord knows those who are his. And those who are his must depart from iniquity. If you're doing something right now that you know you wouldn't be doing if Jesus just showed up and split the clouds right now and came through and it was it. Repenting is turning. The Lord knows those who are his, and those who are his must depart from iniquity. So if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, the people of Nineveh repented. And the call upon his church is to repent. And the initial repentance is like, if you think of it like driving a car. When we first come to Jesus, I mean, we're going the complete wrong direction. We are going the wrong way. And so the repentance is a turning. But now as the people of God, we are still have this tendency to fall asleep at the wheel, to drift over the yellow line. And thankfully, hopefully there are yellow lines that, that keep us in check. But when you drive a car, you're constantly correcting because you want to stay within the lines. And so Martin Luther said, you know, in the very first thesis that he nailed on the, on the 95 thesis, when our Lord and Master said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So this isn't just the Ninevites need to repent. The, how much more do the people of God continually need to keep steering and driving and walking in line with the truth of the gospel and repenting afresh because we want to be right with him because we love him and we don't want to live in sin because he's better than sin and we don't want to go back to Egypt the idea is that we don't want to go back to our sinful ways we know that this is better than what we had before and so we stay on the straight and narrow as we wait his return let's pray together Lord Jesus we thank you that when we had gone astray that you came to seek us and to find us. You laid your very life down, shed your life's blood to make atonement, to make us right with you. Lord, forgive us even now for where we've gone astray. Lord, we give you our sin. We confess our small thoughts of you and how little we fear you, truly fear you in in a godly and good way. And we ask that, Lord, we would understand, Lord, your love and also your wrath. And that we would give you the glory that you deserve and live for you. We thank you for the privilege now to come to your table and to meet with you. We thank you that we have table fellowship with the King of Kings. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.